you've been reading ahead in First Peter, you recognize that today's section, even most of your Bibles label it this way, as submission to authority. Before we read, let me just kind of recap where we've come from, because especially today, I think this is really important. So Peter, you can kind of glance back as I, as I mentioned these terms. Peter is calling God's born-again, new, special people. He's got some other terms for them. He's called them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then he calls them sojourners and exiles. They were once not a people. Now they are God's people. Okay, so God's new people are special. What Jason shared with the kids last week, they're special not because anything of themselves, but because God's stamp is on them. They belong to God. Kind of like those normal things in a museum. They're only special because they belong to somebody important, someone famous. And so, you'll hear me say this again several times this morning, but now God's people, God's new people, are to do new things. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, he said previously, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. So in our text for today, Peter is going to continue that same thought, and that's why I wanted to read that to you. He's going to continue the same thing. He's still explaining the new things that God's new people are supposed to be doing. So you can see the title of my message today. I actually read this from an old uh, commentary. But how do we fit the new life that God has called us to into the concept of our old relationships? So we're a new people, a new creation. How do we... How do we deal with our old relationships? Like, how do you go to work and talk to your boss? How do you go home and talk to your spouse? How do you deal with one another in the church? Now that we've been changed, how does that impact our relationship? And I think what he goes on to say in verse 13 of chapter 2, all the way, I think, through the end of the book, really, it falls into this same category that we've already read, that Peter has already encouraged us to, how the pure conduct of God's people looks to onlookers and what it causes them to do in so much as glorifying God. Because you can look, you can kind of skip ahead and look at the titles we've got today. We've got submission to authority. Wrapped up in that next week will be the servants and masters, employees, employers, kind of an idea. Then at the beginning of chapter 3, Peter begins to talk about husbands and wives then in chapter 4, he starts more, talks more about suffering as a Christian. And then in chapter 5, he talks about how the relationships in the church, specifically with church leaders. So the kind of conduct that God's new people display in those relationships really matters. And look at, look at that list. Think about that list. Governing authorities, your boss or your employees, your husband or your wife people in the church, aren't these some of the areas that are the most challenging to have good, growing, positive relationships in? To live purely in? It's very easy to be frustrated with our governing authorities. It's very easy to be frustrated with an uncooperative or uninterested spouse. 
It's very easy to be at odds with fellow church members. Why? Well, it's because we all come to those relationships with the baggage of sin. And Peter is saying, no, put away malice and envy and slander and all those things at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 2. And this is what it looks like in those relationships now. It seems natural, though, to kind of just shift the blame. Well, it's not my fault. They did this. I responded in this way. It's very easy to do that, to throw our hands up in frustration when we feel mistreated instead of remembering Peter's command to keep your conduct pure. John MacArthur says this, how you live as a Christian is the greatest apologetic for the evidence of the transforming power of the gospel. There's really no greater way for people to see the transforming power of the gospel than to see the life of a transformed person. The point of this section, and he's talking about this section in First Peter, the point of this whole section is that we as Christians are to live in such a way that by our exemplary lives, we stop the mouths of those who criticize the faith by how we live our lives. So today we look at verses 13 through 17, specifically covering the topic of submission to authority. And before we read, I just want to, I want you to understand the need for me as, as a pastor to keep us from steering the car into the ditch on either side of the road. Okay. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? Because there are two ditches that we'll, we'll talk about. I'll try to point out and it's not lost on me either that we come to this text with the political climate that we have in America. And I would even argue that it's God's goodness and sovereignty that he's planned it that we're here in First Peter chapter 2 with submission to government authorities in this day and age. This is not a coincidence. But I also recognize and just be real honest here that if you're like me, you, f- you feel the tension around this topic. It seems like at least I'm tempted to just kind of keep my mouth shut because no matter what I say, somebody's going to be mad, right? It doesn't matter. Like you could say the most perfect thing and somebody out there is going to be upset. And so the Lord has really been teaching me this week that I'll encourage you with this too. And it's just this, say what God says and it won't matter what other people say. So look back at the first verse of chapter two. Just before we read, I want to recall what Peter says about living as God's new people. He says, put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Look back more to chapter 1, verse 14. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Verse 13 of chapter 1, be sober-minded. And in verse 12 of chapter 2, he says, the time is coming, and we might even argue that it's already here, when people will speak against us as believers and call what we do evil. Our behavior, our conduct, though, is what Peter says, speaks the loudest in those critical moments. So you're not going to hear me today tell you to grab your pitchforks and march to the White House and burn it all down. I'm not going to tell you to do that. And yet at the same time, I'm not going to tell you to go home and empty out your gun vaults and give them to the government. I'm not going to tell you to do everything that the politicians are telling you to do that you ought to do. Because I don't think the Bible tells us that. And so you can see we've got our work cut out for us today. And I say we there because I'm not the only one working right now. 
You guys understand that? Every time we open the Word of God together and learn from it and are shaped by it, we're, there's a work that's happening. Now, God is doing it, but we're also working out our sanctification in these moments. Because I, I, there are things that we're going to see or that we can see in this world that are clearly wrong. I'll mention some of them later. But there are things that we can see that are clearly wrong and that we should not do. But I don't want us to, to jerk the wheel from going that way so hard that we overcorrect and end up in the ditch on the other side. We're going to be tempted as we read this, not just to do that, but we're also going to be tempted to just read this and apply it immediately to America in 2022. And I want us to just pause and just slow down a minute and read it for what it is. Now, there's some similarities between our culture now and the culture that this was written in, maybe more than we realize. And yet there's some things that we need to see before we try to attempt to apply it right away. If we truly believe what Peter says at the end of the first chapter, where he said, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord, what? Endures, it lasts forever, remains. If we truly believe that, then this word that we're going to read together, it applies no matter the time frame, no matter what administration is in office. God's word always supersedes our current situation. And the word that we're about to read should not only influence what we think and do, but it should control what we think and do. I can't leave here and say, well, I heard what the Bible said, but please don't do that. Please don't follow. I understand what God says, but don't do that. Commit in your hearts as we read this and as we talk this morning to say, whatever God says, that's how I want to live. So let's read. And then pray, because we're going to need it. Chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence and ignorance the foolish people. Live as those who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray. Lord, we do... It's not lip service. Lord, we do need you in this. We absolutely need your spirit to to give clarity. And and not just that, because I think sometimes we do see what's right, and we just... We just lack the conviction to do it. So, Lord, provide those things, clarity, but also the conviction to just go and live our lives the way you've called us to. Some of it's easy and some of it's not. And so give us wisdom as we uh, work through these things as your people this morning because we, we don't just want to pick and choose what we listen to from your word. Uh, we want to we be all in with what you have for us. And so, Lord, do that work in us this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we move on, I just want to point out what I think are are the, the key and connecting verses in this chapter. And really, they set the tone for the rest of the book. And they're in verse 12 that we looked at last week and verse 15 from this week. And I'll summarize it this way. By doing good, by the Christian's honorable conduct, 
foolish people or evildoers will be put to shame and their mouths will be silenced. And when they stand before God on judgment day, they will agree wholeheartedly that their punishment is just. They will indeed glorify God on that day, even in their punishment. So what kind of impact does your conduct have on those people around you? Well, think about this with me. In fact, think about evangelicalism as a whole in the last couple of years. What does the news report on when it comes to Christianity? Do you often hear anyone reporting on how many missionaries the church has sent out? Or how awesome the SBC's disaster relief efforts are? Do you hear sometimes that maybe? But most of the time, what do we hear? Well, we hear about the latest big-time moral failing from some prominent evangelical church leader. That's what gets reported on. Is the conduct of their lives closing the mouths of the critics or is it fueling their criticism? Our conduct, brothers and sisters, matters to our families, to the people around us. And I would hope that it's obvious that it matters to the Lord. It says something to the world. And so let me just say it again because I think Peter is continuing to hit this point. God's new people should do new things. We don't respond the same way in these relationships than we once did. And he calls Christians sojourners, exiles. Christians live almost on a different plane, a different level in a sense, because this world is not their true home. The affections of God's people are set on things above, not on the things of this earth. Christians then submit to an authority, hear this, that is greater than any other authority. Greater than any other authority on the earth, below the earth, above the earth. It doesn't matter. God in Christ reigns supreme. The Christian's highest authority. So the ditch on one side of the road is to get so carried away with our heavenly identity that we become indifferent to the world that we live in. So we begin to maybe think, well, this world isn't my home, which is true. But we begin to think, this, since it's not my home, it doesn't really matter what happens to this world. Since I'm a citizen of heaven more than a citizen of the United States, my earthly citizenship here doesn't really mean anything. And therefore, it doesn't really matter. I don't really care what happens to this place. And then we become uninvolved in the way that our nation is run. And then we, you can see the slippery slope that happens there. Since we're not in the world and the wor- not of the world, the result of this attitude could be just kind of almost an indifference to everything, the society around us, and even maybe a disregard for authority around us. But Peter is quick to write verse 13. We cannot miss it. Despite being citizens of heaven, we can't completely disengage or be indifferent about what he calls human institutions. We can't just ignore them. We can't say, well, because God is my supreme leader, the speed limit has nothing to do with me. That's a simplified way to look at this, obviously. But maybe we're tempted to think that. I don't have to listen to the current administration because they're not my boss. God is. Peter says that God's new people should willingly submit to them. And for some of us, that kind of sticks in our craw, doesn't it? Kind of makes us bristle a bit. Uh, I read this week about a guy who lived in a very similar time to Richard and Sabina Wurmbrand, who we'll see the movie of 
in a couple of weeks. It was a guy named Georgie Vins. He lived a little bit after the Warm Brands. Um, <clears throat> he was a pastor in Russia. He spent over 10 years in prison for preaching the gospel. He and the other believers who were imprisoned together there, they determined to do something very unusual. Unusual maybe in our eyes, but when you look at scripture and you think of Peter's example, not so unusual. But here's what they determined. They determined to obey every law that they could, just or unjust, with the exception of laws that would force them to cease worship or to disobey the word of God. And so he was arrested for preaching the gospel, went to prison for three years, was released, and guess what happened? He went to prison again for longer. Between those prison stays, the government there in communist Russia forbade public worship. They were not allowed to worship in public. And so he led his church to meet in members' homes or even out in the field, out in the forest outside of Kiev. He was imprisoned for preaching the gospel, which to the government there was considered evangelism and was strictly forbidden because they considered it political and spiritual propaganda against the state. It was forbidden, and yet, what did they do? Well, they preached the word, which got them into trouble, but other than that, they continued submitting to governing authority. And these persecuted Christians took Peter's admonition seriously. If they were going to suffer, and they did, they determined that they would suffer for obeying everything that they could, but not when they couldn't. Submission is something that we just buck against, though. It does stick in our craw. It's, it's evidence from the very beginning. Think back to the garden and Adam and Eve. They sought to have control. So they pursued trying to be like God by going around his authority instead of submitting to it. We looked at this in our small group this week. They thought they'd be satisfied through disobeying God, but it didn't work. You know what? It doesn't work. It can't work. And what's needed in those moments where we think we can subvert God's authority by going our own way, we need repentance. That was the point Wednesday night. We need to have a lifestyle of repenting. Are we suffering for doing what's right or are we suffering for doing what's wrong? Peter gives example of the kinds of authorities that we submit ourselves to. Look at verse 13 and 14 of chapter 2. He lists them as governors an emperor and the emperor. Now the emperor means the king, the ruler, the most supreme foundation of power in the time. Governor means a little bit under that, more like a, a ruler or a prince of a certain area. So Peter says about these guys, about government, the same thing that Paul says in Romans 13. Maybe you're familiar with this. Maybe you're expecting me to go here. We have to. It's God who sets these guys in authority. As much as that baffles me, who put President Biden as President of the United States? The Bible would say God did. Peter says that they are sent by God. Paul says in Romans 13, 1 and 2, that there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Peter points out then what these guys' jobs are, what their job is. Look at verse 14, that these guys are sent by him, I believe he says, by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So that's the job of the, the magistrates, of the ruler, of the emperor, to praise what is good and punish what is evil. 
Paul says it this way. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So God's established authority is tasked with punishing wrong and praising good. We'll come back to that, that thought in just a minute. Okay, look at verse 13. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution. So that's the motivation that Peter lists as why we submit to the, to authority. Why? For the Lord's sake. Responding submissively to authority is responding properly to God's ordained rule. And this goes right, right along with his will of doing good in verse 15. Remember, that's one of those key and connecting verses. That's God's will for us is to do good. It's the will of the Lord for his new people to do good while submitting to authority whenever they can. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says that we should live as people who are free, but who don't use that freedom as a cover-up for evil. Peter uses the word freedom here, I think, as a term to talk about being free from the bonds of sin more than he does about their freedom as a citizen of a particular country. Use your freedom from sin, from sinning, as a way to live this new life. Yes, he says, you're free in Christ to live your life. But you cannot use your freedom as an excuse to disobey God and to sin. Paul talks the exact same way in Galatians chapter 5, specifically verse 13 of Galatians 5. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I'll connect living as servants with God more next week as we continue on. But here, Peter is saying that Christians are not bound by the powers of darkness any longer, and so they shouldn't continue living like they are. We can't continue living like we are. And yet our natural inclination is to take care of who? Me, myself, and I. Do what's best for me. Get ahead, do what I can, make myself more comfortable, make life easier for myself. But you know what? We have been freed from that kind of thinking. Freed from the sinfulness of using our freedom to serve ourselves and not God. But Peter says, in that freedom, you are now free to do what? Look at that last verse, 17. You are now free to honor everyone, to love the brotherhood, to fear God, and yeah, to honor the emperor. Now notice in that list that none of those things can be sufficiently done if we are using our freedom as a cover-up for doing evil. And why is that? Well, when we are covering up our sin, our wrongdoing, evil, who are we most concerned about? Ourselves. And so I can't sufficiently honor you or love the brotherhood or fear God or certainly honor an emperor or those in authority over us if I'm more concerned about myself than anybody else. Peter's command, I think, essentially here is against selfishness and in favor of service, which is displayed by honoring and loving others and revering God above all, everyone. This really does include everyone. Peter says both fellow Christians, 
the brotherhood, non-Christians, he says, honor everyone. And he makes a point, I think he makes it a point, to bring governing authorities back into the picture by listing the emperor again here in verse 17. And again, truth be told, honoring some in the government feels like a monumental task. But I hope this comes as an encouragement. We're not the first people to feel this way. Let me just point our attention to a couple of biblical situations. Think back to Moses and Israel and Pharaoh. Think back to Esther and the Persian king Ahasuerus. Think to Daniel and the Persian king of Darius. Think back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the Babylon king of Nebuchadnezzar. Think back to Peter and Paul and the emperor in their day, who was Nero. The list could go on. Now, that's really something, to hear Peter and Paul say words like this, submit to your authority, considering who they were living under the rule of. That's really something. Nero, a paranoid, angry, murderous tyrant who ended up committing suicide at the age of 30 because he was so paranoid. And it's Peter and Paul who say things like this. These are in your notes because I wanted you to see. This is not me just spinning something. This is Peter and Paul themselves. First Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, then, he's speaking to a young pastor. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And who is an authority over him? Nero. He says to Titus in Titus 3, 1 and 2, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. They were under the hand and rule of Nero. First Peter chapter 2, 13 and 14, I'll read it again. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or as governor sent by him, to punish, punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And Peter wrote that under the hand of Nero. Peter and Paul both traditionally, historically, are believed to have died martyrs' death under the rule of Nero. But do we honestly believe, knowing all of that, hearing what they just said about submitting to authority, do we believe that either of them would go back and change what they had to say at the end of their life when they're facing crucifixion or the guillotine? Do, do you think that Peter or Paul would say, let me go amend what I wrote to the churches first? I don't think that they would, even faced with that. Now, we've seen what God's enduring word says. Remember, that's his word. It endures. So let me ask the question that my guess has kind of been lingering in your mind the whole time. What do we do when authorities get it wrong? What do we do when those in authority, the governing authorities over us, overstep their bounds? What happens when they command us to do what God tells us not to do, or they command us not to do something God tells us to do? What then? Remember, how do we view these things? Not in the bubble of 2022 in America. We can't. We have to view these things through the lens of all of Scripture, not just through our emotions, not just through our feelings or the political climate of our day. 
Think back to the point of our key in connecting verses 12 and 15. The honorable conduct of Christians. Your good works in these moments are seen by those who do evil and it silences them. I think that's Peter's point. But still, the question is, how do we respond to a ruling authority that gets it backwards? What do we do when it seems like the government is praising what is evil and punishing what is good? It's not an easy question. First, I think we need to remember what we've already said. God alone is overall. God is supreme. If God establishes all earthly authority, and he does, then he is surely over them as well, whether they acknowledge it or not. And also remember that the Christian's allegiance is to God first and foremost. And that's why I think Peter is saying this world is not your home. Exiles, sojourners, God is your supreme allegiance. In a book called Toward a Biblical View of Civil Government, Robert Culver says this, There's no power but that which comes from God. So civil government is an instrument, not an end. Men are immediate ends, but only God is the ultimate end. The state owns neither its citizens nor their minds, bodies, or children. All of these belong to their creator God who has never given to the state rights of eminent domain. Christians cannot give to earthly authorities what they should only give to God. That was part of Jesus' point with the fish in the, the, the coin in the fish's mouth. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. And don't get those confused. In fact, this is the very thing that got some churches and pastors in trouble. And I'll put quotation marks around that with their governing authorities in the last couple of years, specifically in the state of California and in the country of Canada. Government said, you can't gather as a church. And churches in both of those locations said, you're operating outside of your jurisdiction here and against God's command to gather together as the church. And so we cannot submit to your authority because we must submit to a higher authority. And it got them in trouble. And it sounds a little bit like what Peter endured in Acts chapter 4 and 5. If you want to turn to the book of Acts chapter 4, give you a second to do that. We're not going to read long sections here, but you can kind of glance through those stories as I talk. Peter and John are kind of the main characters in some of these stories, and, and they are with others, other disciples, other believers, and they're preaching. And they were put in prison as a result. You may know this story. There was a, a real silly trial that was done, and they determined that if they, if they really came down and dropped the hammer on these guys, that they would be looked at, these officials would be looked at in a bad light. So as a good politician, they decided to um, not do that. And so they just basically gave the boys a stern talking to, and they said, don't, don't teach and don't speak at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John, they said, okay, whatever you say, just let us go, right? They didn't say that. I don't think that even flashed across their minds. Here's, here's what they say. Acts 4, 18 through 20. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so they left and they preached. And they got arrested again. 
And again, they were told, they said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, and this is the part that you'll recognize. They answered and said this, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. There are times when it is right to disobey our governing authorities. Jesus' followers said, do what you must, but you're commanding us to do something that we cannot do because you're operating above your pay grade. We must obey God rather than men. And so the story goes that they were beaten again and again told not to speak in the name of Jesus. And get this, I don't want us to miss this. This will help us as we go on in First Peter. Here's how these guys responded. They rejoiced, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. They suffered dishonor. What was done to them was wrong. And they counted a privilege to suffer in that way. And then what did they do? They continued preaching. They continued doing what God had told them to do. Now, I do want to point out just briefly a couple of things. We get no indication that any of these Christians resisted the authority's response to their civil disobedience. They preached, which they knew was wrong, and then they took the punishment that they knew they would receive. Just like Georgie Vins, just like Richard Wormbrand. They knew what was coming if they were to obey God, but they must obey God rather than men. They didn't resist their authority's response. There's also indication that Peter and Paul never resisted arrest either. Can you imagine Paul being dragged off one of the many times he was captured? Can you imagine him just going limp and making his captors drag him wherever he went? Can you imagine Paul fighting, punching officers who came to arrest him? Can you imagine him making this giant spectacle as he's being arrested, throwing his hands in the air, hollering loudly about the injustice that was taking place and what he was suffering. Peter and Paul, they knew who they had to obey and they dealt with the consequences, even rejoicing that they got to suffer injustice for the name of Christ. Now, just to be clear, in Scripture, and I think in our current day and age as well, what I just described to you is really more the exception than it is the rule. What I, what I mean is this. We don't find evidence in Scripture that any of these Christians went looking for trouble. You see what I'm saying? We don't see them going out intentionally trying to mess with authorities, to disobey them. They simply went and did what God called them to do. And when those things intersected, they took the consequences that they knew were going to happen. And they did it with joy. They didn't go looking for trouble. This is pretty clear if you just skip ahead to verse 19 in First Peter chapter 2. It says, this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And we'll look at that verse more next week. I'll ask the question and answer it again. Are there times when we should resist the authority over us? Yes. I mentioned some situations. Let me mention them more in full now. Peter, John, and the early church resisted authority, or what I say disobeyed authority, rather, by preaching the gospel when they were told not to. Why? Because they had to obey God rather than men. Remember Daniel with King Darius. What was the silly law that he passed? Don't pray to anyone else but me. Did Daniel just take like 
a 30-day break? Did he take a break from praying? Maybe he just went in his closet behind the closed door and prayed for a little time, you know, until things just kind of blew over and he would be safe. He didn't do that. He prayed with his window open and they, they knew he would and that's how they knew they could get him in trouble. That's a really interesting story. Uh, when King Darius finally comes to his senses and all those evil people are thrown into the lion's den instead, Daniel says, I haven't sinned against you or the law. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. King Nebuchadnezzar, what did he tell everyone? His mandate from the top said what? Fall down and worship this giant statue of me or else be thrown into a fiery furnace. These guys did no such thing. They said, we cannot. They disobeyed the king's mandate. Think about the Israelite women in Egypt told to drown their babies. And because, Exodus says, because they feared the Lord more than Pharaoh, they disobeyed. They kept them alive. Now these, these are truly brave men and women. They obeyed their ultimate authority of God and refused to bow the knee to a lesser authority of a king when they were being told to violate God's word. But I also need to point out that they didn't disobey their king simply because they had a different opinion on how something should be done. They defied rulers only when these rulers commanded something against what God had already established as truth, like preaching the gospel, like the necessity of prayer, like not worshiping false gods, like not murdering little babies. To be sure, there are times in our current day and age where we ought to resist authorities. Like when we're told government funds are going to go murder babies for convenience. That's a clear violation of scripture and we cannot submit to it and we should seek every opportunity in every way to stop it. Or like when we're told that we might not be able to gather for corporate worship for an extended time. We've been commanded by God in the book of Hebrews to not forsake the gathering of believers and so we cannot submit to that kind of law for any length of time. There are times when we cannot and should not submit to authority, but most of the time, I don't think we're faced with that dilemma. Most of the time, it's not that we, should we obey God or man? It's, can we obey both God and man? Not God rather, but God and. And and so I think I'll go back to the overarching Christian principle for submission to authority. God's new people should be known as law-abiding, not troublemaking. God's people should be known as submissive rather than rebellious, respectful of government rather than demeaning of it. If this is not the desire of our hearts, then we need to repent and submit ourselves first to the Lord who will turn our hearts to submit to those he has set over us. And just like Georgie Vins and Richard Wormbrand and many others before us, we commit to obey the law, the governing authorities over us, if at all possible. And when it's not, we must obey God rather than men and ask God to give us the wisdom to know the difference. See, the ditch on the one side says the government does bad stuff, so I don't have to listen to them. So I don't have to do any of it. But the ditch on the other side of the road is just as dangerous. And that ditch is the person that says, well, the government told me to do it, so I have to do whatever they say. It's dangerous too. 
Please understand, as Christians, we must speak out against sin. Wherever it is, bring these things to light. We must speak out against sin. We must speak out against injustice, against immorality, against ungodliness and lawlessness. Because if we don't, who will? However, I do believe that we must do it within the framework of the civil authorities that God has placed over us with respect for them, honoring them as Peter calls us to do multiple times here. I don't think we can read 1 Peter 2, Romans 13. I don't think we can read those genuinely without coming to that kind of conclusion. I would add, though, that if we don't get this kind of submission right, then we're going to miss the mark when Peter goes on to talk about submission in the workplace or in the home or in the church. If we refuse to submit properly to God now, we can't submit properly to anyone else. Let me say that just again. If we refuse to submit to God himself, to do what he's told us to do in his unchanging, enduring word, then we're not going to be able to submit to the governing authorities. We're not going to be able to submit in the home, in the church, in the workplace. Forget about it. If we won't submit to God in these sorts of things, we won't submit to someone else. Because you know what? That someone else is flawed just like you and me. And they're going to pass a ridiculous law. They're going to make a ridiculous, hurtful statement. They're going to do something that you don't agree with. And you won't be able to submit properly if you refuse to submit first properly to God. Now let's, let me just get a sneak peek for next week and close this out this way. Look at verse 24 of chapter 2. We will revisit this next week, but let me end with just a word about this. That verse says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then He, he says, By His wounds you have been healed. Why did Jesus suffer death on a tree, on a cross? Why? The verse tells us, so that Christians might die to sin. So as Christ died physically, Christians then now die to ourselves, to our own wants, to our own wills. But by the willing wounds of Christ, God's new people have been healed, Peter says here, and are now free to live to righteousness. Not to lawlessness, not to rebellion and resistance, but to righteousness. Are we living that way? Are we living to righteousness? May God give us grace to because we need it, because that's not our natural inclination to live to righteousness. There may come some wounds in this process. Peter endured them. Paul endured them. Many of the people that I referenced earlier, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Israelite women, they all endured them despite doing what was right. There may come some wounds when we seek to do the new things the new way. But it might be one of the greatest evangelistic tools that we have. When in the midst of lawlessness, Christians live for righteousness. The world sees, going back to what John MacArthur said earlier, the world sees what a person saved from sin is really like. What a testimony to the grace and transforming power of the gospel in our lives. May we go and live that way. Avoiding the ditch on one side while also avoiding the ditch on the other. We steer straight to the heart of God, traveling his word to live for righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, even in, in saying these things, it's hard for me. Lord, it might be hard for others who are here listening 
It's hard to think that I might suffer unjustly. And I'm mentally preparing for ways to respond to this sort of thing if it trickles down into Pike County in my lifetime. Thinking of how I would respond, how I would prepare my family, how the church would be prepared best. Lord, this is it. There's no better way but to believe and practice that your word endures, that you are supreme ruler over everything. And if if the time ever comes when we're faced with that choice to obey God or man, that we would always and only go with you. But in the meantime, when we're not necessarily faced with such a dichotomy, Lord, but instead help us to, to see and capitalize on the moments when we can obey both you and those in authority over us. Would help us to know when is when. Because it's not so easy. We need your wisdom and we need your spirit. So Lord, help us to avoid extremes in this. Avoid being overly critical and disrespectful and demeaning of our government officials. You've, Paul, through your word and inspiration, has told several times to submit to them and to pray for them. To not speak ill of anyone. So Lord, may we not be demeaning of our, our government of those in authority over us. Help us to see when it's right to to disobey. But Lord, in every opportunity that we have, that we would choose to obey. And Lord, you may convict our hearts on any number of things, all the way down to the speed limit, all the way down to our own personal attitudes that maybe we only share with a few people. Lord, send your spirit to do a work in our hearts. Give us strength like some who have gone before us in the last couple of years who have stood firm and said, no, we cannot obey your law because it's causing us to break another higher law. Lord, help us to resist where we need, to disobey when you call us to something better and higher, Lord, but not until then. Help us to know, help us to live this way because as as you've said over and over here, your new people do new things and the way that your people do new things matters. So help us to live for righteousness, for that is the reason why Christ went to the tree. Thank you for him. May we respond today in a way worthy of him. In your name we pray, amen.